Well, good morning, everybody. I'm just trying to sort myself out here. Put those over there, I think. Um, wow. It does feel pretty full in here. So, yeah, Vital Signs is a series we started last week, and Neil kicked us off by speaking about mission as being one of those vital signs of health uh, for us as individuals, as Christians, and also for us as a church, and about sharing God's heart for mission, his command to the people to go. And he outlined, as he just said, what that means for us right now here at King's. So if you didn't hear that last week, I really would encourage you to, to have a listen, to download and have a listen. Well, another vital sign, as Neil said, both in the Christian life and in the church as a whole, is prayer. Prayer. And I saw the title of what I was speaking on this morning, I thought, my goodness, where do I start? Where do I get, how many places in the Bible can you go to? to find out about prayer. But there's one particular, very little verse which has caught my attention this week particularly. And it's in Luke 5. And in, as we come to Luke chapter 5, Jesus has a growing reputation for his healings, his miracles, for his teaching. You know, people want a bit of Jesus. And in Luke 5, he, he heals this person of leprosy. Um, and he says to him, look, don't go around telling everyone about this. He says this quite a lot to people. Don't go and tell everyone about it. Go to the temple do, do the, the appropriate sacrifices, go through the proper channels. But then we come to verse 15 in Luke 5, and it says, yet, even though Jesus said, don't go around telling everyone, yet the news about him spread all the more. So the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. The people want a bit of Jesus. He's causing quite a stir, but here's the verse, verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. We know that sometimes Jesus spent all night in prayer. In the very next chapter in Luke, in Luke 6, tells us about how he spends all night in prayer before he chooses his 12 disciples. We know he, he frequently would get up in the morning before the sun rises. Now, I'm, I'm guessing that that's pretty much what your prayer life is like, right? Yes? Yeah. I, I, I expect... I'm sure that there's nobody here who ever sort of says, I, I just don't feel like I can pray, or I can't be bothered to pray. I don't expect that applies to any of you here. Um, in fact, I, you know what? I expect that none of you ever get to the end of a day, or maybe even the end of the week, and think, I haven't prayed today. That's probably not something any of you ever encounter. I expect that whenever you pray, it looks something like this. Right? That's what it's like for me. I don't or is this closer to, <laughs> to reality? Let me make a confession. I'm not very good at prayer. And I suspect that you're not either. So I'm sure some of you pray absolutely loads and loads and loads, but you probably still feel that it's not enough. You probably still feel you're not that good at prayer. So what am I trying to say? Just because I'm standing here on the platform doesn't mean that I have cracked this. It doesn't mean that I'm some expert in prayer. Far, far from it. Please believe me. So what I'm really trying to say is this is from one failure in prayer to a bunch of failures in prayer. And I hope you don't mind me saying that. If anyone's offended, come and talk to me afterwards. But I guess a good starting point, a key question to ask is, well, what is prayer? What are we talking about here? Because um, we tend to think of prayer as just this abstract thing that Christians have to do. It's a, a duty, it's a burden, 
it's a formula. We, you know, when we pray, we, we must make sure we do this and we do this and we ask this and we say this. We can get formulaic about it. And of course, when we don't manage to achieve it, when we don't do it, we feel guilty and we feel like failures. And actually, more often than not, we end up giving up. Well, John Calvin expressed, he defined prayer like this. He said, it's the chief exercise of faith. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. In other words, prayer is the main way, it's the primary way that true faith expresses itself. So prayer is not just a thing that we do, it's it's an expression of faith. It's a part of who we are as Christians. It's first and foremost um, a response to God rather than an attempt to get a response from God. Now, of course, there's a variety of ways in which that can be expressed. There's lots of different ways we pray, lots of different types of prayer. When it boils down to it, prayer is essentially conversation with God, talking and listening. It, it, it's kind of very simple in, in one sense, but there are lots of different ways that people do that and lots of different methods and, and techniques. And I, I, I'm not really going to go into that today because, as I said, the thing that's really caught my attention is that verse in Luke 5. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Do you know what? It must have been very tempting for Jesus not to do that. You've got these crowds of people. They want him. They, they, it would have been very tempting to let kind of success go to your head and I'm going to wow this lot with more miracles and healings. I'm going to stun them with my teaching even more. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. I don't know what he prayed in all those times. We don't know how he prayed. Just that he did. And it was important just that he needed regular time alone with God. He needed to be in communion with his Father in heaven to know success in his ministry and in his mission. And I think it's pretty fair to say that if Jesus needed that, how much more do we need to do that too? How much more do we need communion with God? Now, if prayer is the primary expression of faith, well, then it follows that prayerlessness... The absence of prayer is an expression, it's an indicator of a lack of faith. It it demonstrates a lack of belief in God. Prayerlessness, according to Michael Reeves, he says prayerlessness is practical atheism. That's a good line. Listen to what he says here. He says prayerlessness always goes hand in hand with a lack of Christian integrity. This is even more so for Christian leaders. To put it bluntly, if they are not enjoying communion with God, then they are selling a product they don't really believe in. That's a challenge, but it's true. It's absolutely true, but it's a good challenge. It's a good challenge for me because I tend to be fairly task-driven. That's kind of just what what I'm like. I tend to be pretty task-driven. I know how easily I can neglect prayer. I know how easily I can be more like Martha in that story in Luke chapter 10, busying yourself, you know, trying to complete tasks, self-sufficient busyness, rather than being like Mary, sitting at Jesus' feet, just being with Jesus and choosing what is better. I know how easily I can neglect prayer. Thankfully, God never lets me stay in that place for too long. But prayerlessness, you know, sometimes not praying can feel like the easier option, but it's a miserable place to be. I know when, I know when I'm neglecting my prayer life, it becomes very obvious to me, because I get... I get lethargic, I get burdened, I get weary, I have no motivation, I just want to dull my senses in front of the TV. I get tired, I get tired of the church, I get tired of other people. I get tired, I guess, in the end, of God. I just can't be bothered, and I have no energy, and yet I'm still trying to do everything in my own strength. 
It's not a good place to be. And actually, prayerlessness becomes its own punishment. It becomes a vicious, a vicious circle. Ben Patterson gives the example of a guy called John Sanford who, who describes this well that stood outside um, a family farmhouse in New Hampshire. And he says, The water from the well was remarkably pure and cold. No matter how hot the summer or how severe the drought, the well was always a source of refreshment and joy. The faithful old well was a big part of his memories of summer vacations at the farmhouse. The years passed and eventually the farmhouse was modernized. Wiring brought electric lights and indoor plumbing brought hot and cold running water. The old well was no longer needed, so it was sealed for use in possible future emergencies. But one day, years later, Sanford had a hankering for the cold, pure water of his youth. So he unsealed the well and lowered a bucket for a nostalgic taste of the delightful refreshment he had remembered. He was shocked to discover that the well that once had survived the severest of droughts was bone dry. Perplexed, he began to ask questions of the locals who knew about these kinds of things. He learned that wells of that sort were fed by hundreds of tiny underground rivulets, which seep a steady flow of water. As long as the water is drawn out of the well, new water will flow in through the rivulets, keeping them open for more to flow. But when the water stops flowing, the rivulets clog up with mud and they close up. The well dried up, not because it was used too much, but because it wasn't used enough. And Sanford observed that our souls are like that well. If we do not draw on the living water that Jesus promised would well up in us like a spring, our hearts close and dry up. Prayerlessness becomes its own punishment. You know, in periods of prayerlessness... We forget who God is. We dry up. We forget who he is. We forget, we forget uh, why we're Christians. We forget what he's done for us. We take it all for granted. We lose the connection with the love that we once knew. We forget that God passionately loves us. And ironically, the more we need to pray to discover those things again, the less we really want to. Prayerlessness. It's a miserable place to be. Prayerlessness is basically saying... I'm in charge. You know, I've got this. I'm in charge. I don't need you. Prayerlessness is effectively putting ourselves in the place of God. But we're told in the Psalms very clearly, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless it's his work, unless he does it, the builders labor in vain. Your efforts will come to nothing. Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. What does that mean? Be still and know that I'm God. It's God saying, just stop. For a minute. Stop trying to be strong. Stop trying to be the big man. Make yourself weak. In your weakness, my strength is made perfect. Stop. Take a break. Take a holiday from being God and let me be God instead. I think you'll find it a lot easier that way around. Be still and know that I am God. And when you stop, when you stop the busyness, you stop the self sufficiency, and you remember and you acknowledge in prayer who God is. And who you are, actually what is that saying? It's saying, I'm not the Messiah. He is. I can't do it all. He can. I'm not in charge. He's in charge. You know, the only person who never actually had a Messiah complex was the Messiah. was Jesus. He often withdrew to lonely places to pray. He was never under the illusion that he could save the world all by himself. Prayerlessness. It's like choosing to cut yourself off from that vine that Jesus talks about in John 15. Where he says, no branch can bear fruit by itself. 
it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. This is interesting. Jesus called his 12 disciples, first of all, to be with him. They didn't have to pass a test. They didn't have to pass a a preaching test, a casting out demons test, a healing test in order to get to be with Jesus. No, first they were to be with Jesus. Then they were sent out to preach, cast out demons and heal. When you see Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, they're before the Sanhedrin, which is the, the Jewish ruling council. And Peter makes this extraordinarily bold speech. These men are in trouble. They're not in favor here. They're in big trouble. Peter makes this speech, and and the Jewish rulers are astonished at the courage of these two men. And it says that they took note that these men had been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. And this is what it's about, isn't it? It's being with Jesus. When we acknowledge that apart from him, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. We can do nothing that will come to anything, nothing of any worth. When we acknowledge that actually we're really in over our heads here. We're in over our heads. We need him if we're going to bear fruit. If we can get over ourselves, get over our pride, remembering who he is and remembering who we are, then we will pray. Then we will pray and we will bear fruit. But apart from him, you can do nothing. It's the same in the church. It's not just about us as individuals. It's the same in the church. You know, the the church can run without prayer, but it will achieve nothing of any worth. We will achieve nothing of any lasting, eternal value or worth if all we're doing is things that we can do without needing to pray. Jesus, in Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Jesus commissions his church to storm the gates of hell, so we must pray. It's too much for us. We must pray because actually the work of the church is God's work. It's not ours. We get the privilege of partnering with God in it, but it's his work. So we must pray because it's too big for us. It's way too much for us to do. We can set up structures in the church. We can set up organizations. We can, we can bring strategy into our thinking in the church. And that's all good and that is all necessary. But what the church really needs is men and women of the Spirit. Men and women of prayer who the Holy Spirit can use for his mission for the mission that he has given to the church. So here's the challenge for you. Neil's already mentioned, 6 to 7 p.m. this evening, we'll be here. We'll be in this room praying. We'll be worshiping, and we will be praying big prayers. We'll be praying for those things that we need God to do, that we need God to move on if they're going to happen at all. Without God moving on these things, they will not happen. It will come to nothing. So are you going to be a part of that? Are you going to get on board with that and not... Not getting on board like just getting on board a train as a passenger, but getting on board to help stoke the furnace. Pour coal on that fire with your prayers. I don't, this is not about putting you on a guilt trip, by the way. You know, I know, of course, there are many legitimate reasons that some, many of you won't be able to be here. Childcare, for example. I know that. I get that. That's fine. But what I'm trying to say is if you, if you don't have that reason not to be here, if you are available and you consider yourself to be a part of us, part of this church, then I really encourage you to be here. And I, again, I don't say that because, uh, you know, we want to get a good turnout so we can pat ourselves on the back and say, well, that was a good prayer meeting. I don't care about a good meeting. I say it because the church needs you to pray. The church needs men and women of the Spirit who will pray, men and women of the Spirit who will go and then just see what God will do. 
join us here this evening. Prayerlessness is not an option for us as individual Christians, and it's not an option for us as a church. But we know that sometimes we don't pray. Actually, sometimes we find it really hard to pray. So what, are the, what stops us? What sorts of things stop us praying? Well, busyness is probably number one, and I'll come to that a little bit later. But what else stops us praying? I guess for many of us, we can ask that question. We just think, what's the point? What is the point? It says in Matthew 6, your father knows what you need before you ask him. So what's the point? Well, the point is that we don't pray so that God can find out what we need. He does already know what we need before we ask. But when we ask God for things in prayer, we express our trust in him. We express our dependence upon on him. Like I said before, in prayer, I acknowledge that he is God and I am me. And I need him. If I'm going to bear fruit, I need him. It's about coming into communion and fellowship with God and sharing his heart. Because actually, when we share his heart, that changes ours. It changes us. It transforms us. Someone once said, prayer is surrender. Surrender to the will of God and cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. And you know, somehow in his sovereignty, God does use the prayers of his people to change things. How does that work? I have no idea. How can God be sovereign and yet let us pray? I have no idea. But he does. James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Maybe that's the problem, though. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe that's what stops you praying. You think, my prayer doesn't feel powerful, and it doesn't feel effective in the slightest. In the book of Revelation, we have this scene. It talks about our prayers rising before God in the heavens. And in this scene in Revelation, there's, there's thunder, and there's lightning, and there's earthquakes. Now, let me let you into a secret. It doesn't generally feel like that when I pray. You know, more often than not, It feels like my prayer, far from rising up to the heavens, my prayer just kind of creeps along the floor before fizzling out to nothing. There's no sense of cosmic power being unleashed. Maybe that's what stops you, fear. Fear that when you pray, God won't turn up. Actually, God won't do anything. Unbelief, which says, God's not listening to you. You're just talking to the wall. You're just talking to the ceiling. That's where faith comes in. Faith, and actually your prayers are heard. God is listening to you in spite of what it feels like. Your prayers are effective. Faith, because it says it in here, and we trust what this says. That's where our faith comes from, is that it tells us in here that God does hear your prayers. Your prayers are effective. Your prayers have an effect in heaven. Your prayers change things, even yours. Your prayers change things. They have power to change situations. It's amazing. It's mind-blowing. Now, of course, prayer is not all about changing stuff. It's not all about asking for, for God to do things and, uh, and change situations. Prayer is primarily about being with him. It's being with God. But then you feel guilty because you think, well, I, I tried to have some time with God, but my, I just couldn't concentrate. My mind kept on wandering here and there. I fell asleep a couple of times and you start to feel guilty. You're not doing it right. You're not doing it properly. Listen, let me put your mind at ease. A couple of years ago, I was preparing to speak on a Sunday morning. I can't remember what it was on, but I was, it was a Friday afternoon, and I was going along to one of the rooms upstairs just to have a bit of a run through, and I thought, you know what? Before I do that, I'm going to go and pray. 
because I'm very spiritual. Um, I'm going to go and pray. So I went and sat in one of the rooms upstairs. Thought, right, I'll just have a quick time of prayer. Then I'll then I'll run through. Two hours later, I opened my eyes. And I was very confused, very disorientated, and then in a panic because I still haven't gone through my sermon for Sunday. I'm very comforted by this illustration from this book called The Signature of Jesus. Listen to this. It says, A father is delighted when his little one, leaving off his toys and his friends, runs to him and climbs into his arms. As he holds his little one close to him, he cares little whether the child is looking around, his attention flitting from one thing to another, or just settling down to sleep. Essentially, the child is choosing to be with his father, confident of the love, the care, the security that is there in those arms. Prayer is much like that. We settle down in our father's arms, in his loving hands. Our mind, our thoughts, our imagination may flit about here and there. We might even fall asleep. But essentially, we are choosing to remain for this time intimately with our Father, giving ourselves to him, receiving his love and care, letting him enjoy us as he will. It's an amazing thing that your prayer ministers to him. Your prayer, when you give him time in prayer, your prayer ministers to the Father heart of God. That's that's amazing. What about unanswered prayer? That can stop us, can't it? Unanswered prayer. Because we don't like waiting for things. We, don't, we, we want things fairly instantly, so we can very easily give up. But that's a bit like a farmer who's sowing some seeds, and he waters the seeds, he stands over them for a couple of hours, and then he walks away shaking his head because there's no sign of any growth. We know full well that God doesn't answer all your prayers in, in your timing and in the way that you want or the way that you expect And actually, sometimes what may feel like an unanswered prayer may well have received an answer. It's just the answer was no. God will answer no if he knows it's something which is not going to be good for us or is not going to achieve his purposes. You know, I'm sure Joseph, all those years ago, I'm sure he prayed earnestly to be rescued from that pit and not be carried off to Egypt in slavery. But he was carried off to Egypt in slavery. And it was years later that he could see how God actually meant that for good. If you have unanswered prayer or prayer to which you've received a negative answer, you're in good company. Jesus prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Paul asked three times for his thorn in the flesh to be removed, but God didn't grant his request. He just said, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm sure that's not the answer Paul was looking for at the time. David prayed for his son's life to be spared, but his son died. But you look at those people from the Bible and they didn't give up there. Actually, unanswered prayer or prayer that's answered in the negative is not a reason to stop praying. It's actually a reason to continue to pray, to continue to trust God, to continue to seek him. The fact is there are many things, and probably many I haven't mentioned here, there are many things that can stop us praying. Because prayer is a big deal. You're going to face opposition on this. It's not going to be just the easiest thing in your life to do. Prayer is a big deal. Let me just give you a couple of general keys that will help you grow in your prayer life. They both begin with D. And the first one is desire. Desire. Sometimes the problem is that we have just lost our desire for God. Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. And in your heads at the moment, those of you who have been around for any length of time, you're thinking, as the deer pants. 
and you're, you're thinking of Bambi by a gently flowing brook in a lush green forest. Listen, this is about a deer who needs to find whatever water it can find in the midst of a drought, right? It drinks or it dies. Now, that shot your picture of Bambi to pieces, okay? This deer has to drink or it will die. And so read it in that, in that setting, in that context, as the deer pants for streams of water, as this deer is desperate to find water, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. My soul is desperate for you. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? There's a desperation here to be with God. This person, the psalmist, is desperate. My soul longs for you, O oh God. My soul thirst for you. I just want to be with you. I just want to know you. You see, this talk is about prayer, but it's not primarily about being into prayer, being a person who's into prayer. It's about being into God. It's all about him and wanting to be with him. It's about being with God. Do you have that desire for God himself? That desire that would cause you to withdraw to lonely places, to pray all night, if that's what it takes. Do you have that desire for God or are you far too easily pleased with what the world offers? Filling your time with rubbish, with useless busyness, filling yourself up on junk food that spoils your appetite for the real thing. Because there's an invitation from God here, an invitation to you, to me, to prioritize spending time in the presence of the Father above all, all other activities. Does that invitation excite you? Does that invitation create in you that longing, that yearning, that desire to be with him? Or does it fill you with indifference or even with dread? Have you lost that desire for God? If you have, you can ask him to renew it in you. Very, it's actually very simple. You just say, Lord, I've, I've gone astray somewhere Renew my desire for you. I've gone dull. I've gone cold in my heart. Renew my desire for you, Lord. Be like that deer, desperate for that water, desperate to be in the presence of God. Desire is a key. It's one of the keys for a healthy prayer life. The other D is discipline. Discipline. Discipline without desire suffocates. But desire without discipline dissipates. Discipline without desire suffocates, but desire without discipline dissipates. Desire fritters away if you do nothing about it. And you may need to work at this a bit. You may need to labor at this a bit. Because you know what? If that well has gone dry, you're going to need to get in and dig until you have that water flowing again. You need to to work at it. If you've stopped hearing the voice of God, if you no longer hear him, well, then you're going to have to spend time listening. You're going to have to spend time training yourself to hear his voice again. Discipline is key. Otherwise, you will always find something else to give your time to. You will always find something else to fill up your time. Yeah, we can help each other out with this. There's a, a, a very well-known story of early African converts to Christianity who, who had that desperation. They had that desire for God, and they would go out. They each had their own place in the long grass where they would pray. They would pour out their hearts to God. That was their solitary place. And over time, the paths of those places became very well-worn. And so it's very easy to see if one of them began to neglect prayer... And the others will be able to hold into account by saying, brother, the grass is growing on your path. The grass is growing on your path. Why have you stopped praying? Do you have anyone who will ask you if the grass is growing on your path? How's your prayer life? Do you ever ask that question of anybody else? 
you know, somebody comes to you and says, I'm just feeling a bit down, I'm not doing great in life at the moment, this is, what's the first thing, probably the first thing we need to ask is, how's your prayer life? Is there grass growing on your path? You know, we can help each other out here. We can hold each other to account on this. I'm going to play you a video clip now, uh, a guy called Bill Hybels. This clip's about six minutes long, so um, it's, it's just worth listening to. Bill Hybels is a pastor of a massive church called Willow Creek in Chicago. So just listen to what he has to say about this. An advertising executive came down to talk to me after a, a service, and he had just become a Christian. I had, I had baptized him at the church, and so, and uh, he said, I, I just can't make time for a meeting with God. He said, you have no idea what it's like to commute downtown every day, and you live in a different world. I, I, can't, I just can't fit, it, fit that kind of thing into my life. And I remember looking at this young guy, hard-charging young guy, and, and I said, here's my experience, and I'm not, you know, I'm only like 24 years old, so there it is. I said, I've always been able to make time for stuff I value. Just how my life works. If I value something, I'll make time to experience it. If I don't, I won't. And I'm making time for a meeting with God in my life. You do it any way you want. And uh, he wasn't too happy with me that day, I don't think. And I didn't see him for a while. And then afterwards, I saw him many months later. And when he came down to talk to me, he, his countenance was different. He felt different. His conversation was different. And he invited Lynn and me. He and his wife invited Lynn and me to go over to their house for dinner. So we accepted. He lived right in the area. And so we go over to their house, and uh, as we're kind of just having some appetizers beforehand, he takes me over to a rocking chair. And he says, you know how you challenged me to have a meeting with God and to just to make the time? He said, I, I, I love rocking chairs, so I bought a good one. And you said that maybe if you're going to make this repeatable and enjoyable, you should look at some scene or vista that you enjoy looking at. And he said, I've got a little backyard here, and I love looking over the backyard. So he said, I, I just bought this chair, and I put it in, at my favorite window where I can overlook the backyard. And he said, I got up a half hour earlier, 15, 20 minutes, half hour earlier each day the last several months. I sit in the chair. I have a cup of coffee. And he goes, I read God's word. I try to make sense of it. I ask him to speak to me by his word. Then I meditate on it, reflect it, apply it to my life. Then he said, I write some thoughts down in a journal and I pray. I pray that I will be more aware of his presence in my life. And I said, how's, how's that going for you? And his wife jumped in and said, I'll tell you how it's going for him. He's a changed guy. What happens to him when he sits in that chair has changed him. He's more centered. He's a more gentle and loving man in our marriage and to our children. I was very impressed with this, that he could show me his chair, that he had taken the time, that he had fashioned a meeting with God that he looked forward to because he liked the chair, he liked the view, he liked the coffee. He was a morning guy. And he fell into this pattern. Many months later, uh, I had coffee with him one time, and he said, I'm thinking about leaving my job in advertising. He said, it's just, it's, it, um, I think I'm done with that. I said, where'd you get these ideas? And he said, well, in my meetings with God in the chair. That's, he's been putting those thoughts in my mind. I said, what are you going to do? And he said, maybe I'll just help you build the church. 
I said, well, no one's getting paid around here, you know. <laughs> and he said, well, I've done pretty well in advertising. I can hold on for a while, and, and uh, maybe if the church grows, you know, then maybe they can help me and my family in some way. And I said, well, you better go back to that chair and see if God's really in this, because I don't want to take responsibility for your life and all this. And he said, okay, I will, and came back about a month later, and he said, you know, I, I gave notice at, at work, and if it's all the same to you, I'm just going to help you start building the church. You pay me what you can, but it's not a concern of mine. And this guy joined our staff, and I'm telling you, he was a hardworking, energized, joyful, uh, industrious individual that really, really helped our church and was on our staff for many, many years. One of the best staff members in the early days of the church. Then one day he comes into my office and he said, you know, I, I still do that meeting with God in that chair, that rocking chair. And he said, God's been stirring in my life in my meetings with God. And he said, uh, a friend of mine starting a brand new church in Colorado. And I think I'm going to pack my family up and move to Colorado. I said, can they support you? He said, no, I'm going to have to go back into the marketplace and uh, make some money because they, they can't afford anything. And uh, I said, you, are you ready to do that? And he said, you know, every morning I talk to God about it. And he said, I'm really fired up about it. So we said goodbye to him, and he packed his family up, and he went out, and he went back into advertising, made a lot of money, and gave most of it to the startup church. And it became a fantastic church. And then in that same chair that he moved out to Colorado, sitting at a window in the morning like he had done for many, many years now, he processed a bad medical report he got from the doctor that cancer had come his way. And he kept working, and he kept supporting that church, and uh, he got sicker and sicker. It was a very fast-spreading kind of cancer. And uh, then he was hospitalized, and one of the great losses he felt when he was in the hospital is that he didn't have his chair. And he died quite soon thereafter, and I did his funeral in Colorado. And I was talking to his widow, his wife, uh, at the funeral reception afterwards. I said, that was something about that chair, wasn't it? She said, his whole life changed in that chair. I said, what are you going to do with the chair? And she said, we are going to pass that chair on to our children and on to our grandchildren in the hopes that someone would sit in it like Tom did and have their life transformed. Simple question, gang. Where's your chair? Where's your chair? It's a great question. Where is your chair? Where do you meet with God? Where do you reflect on his word? Where do you open yourself up to his power? Where do you become aware of his presence in your life? And you could say... You know what? I don't have a, I don't have a nice back garden to look on to. I don't have that sort of time or space in the morning. Neither do I. Neither do I. There's nowhere to go in my house. There are kids everywhere. <laughs> Even if you try to get up early, which for me is a challenge at the best of times, they hear you and get up as well. My house is not the place. I've learned to use the times I have in the car, actually. 
turn the radio off and, and, and chat with God and listen to him and keep my eyes on the road. And They've become valuable times. The point is you can meet with God anywhere. We're talking about the unlimited presence of God here. Your chair can be anywhere and at any time. Some people like to go and sit in the corner of Starbucks first thing or, or at lunchtime or go out for a walk somewhere. Or, you, you know, you, you've got to get creative about this. It will look different for different people. One size doesn't fit all. But f- the question is for you, in your life, in your circumstances, where is your chair? Because we prioritize those things that we value the most. Now, I realize I haven't been very practical today in terms of actually how, how to pray. You know, I put aside half an hour for God. Well, what do you actually do in that time? How do I, how do, I do it? And I'm, and I'm not going to say anything about that. Because actually, you know what? I think the best way that you learn to pray is by praying. You, you learn how you pray. You learn what works for you just by praying. And the Holy Spirit is the best teacher there is. You just got to do it. You just got to start. But for me, the most amazing thing about all of this, this whole subject of prayer is that no matter how much of a failure you might feel, Jesus keeps inviting you into his presence. You know, whenever Jesus asked Peter to pray, Peter fell asleep, but he kept inviting him to pray anyway. In Revelation 3, he's, he's talking to the church in Laodicea, who, which gone, they've gone lukewarm, and he says to them almost pleadingly, he's saying, here I am. I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. This is God. This is the creator of the universe, the almighty, eternal God. And he wants to be intimate with you. He wants to draw near to you. He wants to spend time with you. And not only does he command us to pray, which he does command us to pray, he permits us to pray and address him as Father. Prayer is not an obligation. Prayer is not a burdensome duty. Prayer is a gift. It's a precious, wonderful gift. It's the gift of a loving God, the God who gave everything for you, the one who died for you, gave his life for you, you, his workmanship, his prized and delightful sons, his prized and delightful daughters. So where is your chair? Where do you meet with God? Where do you connect with his heart? Don't settle for second best. Don't settle for junk. And the challenge I really want to leave with you is where is your chair?